Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the Gospel of John and chapter number one in the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn in it to page 71 in the back part, and you would be at John chapter one. This fall, we've been involved in a series of messages we have entitled Amazing Grace. And we have been seeing that grace is God's greatest legacy. It's what distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religious system. But I noticed something fascinating recently. I noticed that most of the classic creeds of the church that the church has had for hundreds of years, things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, it's interesting that they never mention grace in them. And yet grace is such a large part of God's economy. What's interesting is that in the, in the church in general, when you mention the idea of grace, the common notion is that grace is limited to the New Testament. But if you've been with us in this series, you know that we have seen that grace is all over the place. You can trace grace all the way through the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of beginnings in the book of Genesis. But what is true, though, is that Jesus brings the ultimate expression of grace. If you have your Bible open to John chapter 1, I want you to notice verse 14. It's speaking here of Jesus, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. And then He's described as being full of grace and truth. You look at verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. He is grace personified. Jesus is the embodiment and the ultimate expression of the grace of God. And of course, that all climaxed at the cross. Now, the last couple of Sundays, we've been looking at the amazing grace of salvation. And we were in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9. Remember that? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. We saw last Sunday that our grace salvation is a free gift from God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 talks about how we are justified as a gift by His grace. In Romans chapter 6, verses 23, actually, we'll look at just the last part of verse 23. Remember that? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not a matter of His grace plus something else that I add to it. You know, my part. He did His part. I do my part. I have my add-ons that I have to add to His grace. No, it's not that. We've looked several times at Romans chapter 11, verse 6, where it says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You add some kind of work, even if it's a small work, to grace, and there's a spiritual chemical reaction that negates and voids grace. 
That's why the Reformers said regarding salvation, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what our amazing salvation is all about. Now, the question we want to address today is that when we trust Christ as our rescuer from sin and judgment, when we're counting on his death on the cross to pay the penalty for me and my sin, how secure is the salvation that I receive from him? Is that something that I can lose? And there are people running around today who would say, oh, yes, you can lose it. You may have it one day, but you may lose it the next. If I stumble or fall, if I have doubts before God, if I fail in some ways, is God going to reject me sometime in the future? What we want to look at today, we have entitled as the security of amazing grace. The security of amazing grace. And our plan today has four parts to it. Number one, we're going to ask the question, why do people struggle with the security of salvation? Why do people struggle with it? Number two, we're going to see that Scripture teaches that we can know with certainty what our salvation is. And then number three, we're going to look at two irrefutable evidences of the security of salvation. And then we're going to end with a crowning passage. So you see the plan up there? Why do people struggle with the security of salvation? Scripture teaches we can know with certainty that our salvation is secure. We're going to look at two irrefutable evidences of the security of salvation, and then we're going to end with a crowning passage. Now, as we do that, I want to remind you for what our goal is for this whole series, and that is that we want to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. A couple of messages ago, I put up a list of some of the signs that someone has a weak grasp on grace. And I want to, again, bring your attention back to the first two that we mentioned. A sign that we have a weak grasp on grace is if we're confused on how we receive forgiveness from God. But a second sign that we have a weak grasp on grace is if we are unsure we're going to be able to maintain our salvation once we have it. So why, because we want to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, why do people struggle with the security of salvation? And I want to give you several reasons why I think people struggle. The first one is that grace is truly amazing. Remember, grace is the generous, undeserved goodness of God. And when you really begin to see it fully in all its wonder, it is actually astonishing. It's bewildering. It confounds and it astounds. His grace is so marvelous, it's so extraordinary, it's downright remarkable, and when you really see it and grasp it, frankly, it leaves you stunned. It leaves you open-mouthed and wonder-struck. You say, wow, that is the God of amazing grace. Sometimes it's just hard for people to believe and so they don't really have a sense of security in their salvation. They struggle to continue to trust Him. Another reason why we, we struggle with the security of salvation is, number two, that real-life issues raise doubts in people's minds. Real-life issues raise doubts. For example, some doubt the security of their salvation because they never really understood the gospel to begin with. 
That really describes me growing up in, in, in my family. We were very generally positive towards the things of God, but we had, I had no sense of the security of my salvation because I didn't really understand the gospel message. I didn't really understand that Christ had done it all. And then he offers this as a free gift if I will entrust myself to what he did on my behalf. And so I had doubts about the security of salvation. Real life can raise doubts. Some people doubt because they begin worried about their add-ons, you know, quote, quote. Oh, yes, it's 95% Jesus, but I got to take care of my 5% that I have to add into the whole thing. Oh, oh yes, you know, I, I need to respond by faith in what Christ has done, but I need to worry about the part that I add into the mix. I need to add to His grace the thing that I need to do. And if you, if you operate that way, if you think there's something that you add to grace, there's some part that you bring to it, here's what will happen. You'll start thinking to yourself, was I sorry enough over my sin? Did I do enough? I mean, did I complete my part, however big it was? Did I, did I do it well enough? Am I committed enough? Am I faithful enough? See, those are doubts that come when someone's worried about their add-ons to grace. I might remind you that it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 that if we are faithless, he remains faithful to us. People will struggle with the security of their salvation, and real life issues can raise doubts. For example, some doubt because they know they have committed sin, they've done something that was wrong, and the Holy Spirit in our life brings conviction over that. And, and some guilt over that, and it's just real, true guilt. But some of us start to wonder, well, I'm feeling this guilt. I wonder if I could have lost my grip on salvation. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 reminds us that if anyone sins, we have an advocate, someone to plead with us, with the heavenly Father, and that advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. We learn from 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins as someone who's trusted in Christ's work on the cross, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just because we commit some sin doesn't mean our salvation is not secure. See, real life issues can raise doubts. For example, some people have doubts because they have experienced in their life a severe trial. They're going through a very, very difficult time. And they begin to wonder, well, I wonder if I'm just no longer in possession of my salvation. I'm going through this difficult time because God is rejecting me. You're in the fire, and maybe some of you are right there today, and you're wondering, does God still love me? Does God still accept me? But it's very important that we understand that God uses these difficult times, and that's part of what Edie was sharing and the team was singing about. You know, in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says regarding testing, it says we need to know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. So let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God uses these difficulties that we face for a reason. He wants to shape us. He wants to grow us. And even though we're having a severe trial, 
We learn from Romans chapter eight, there's nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, real life issues can raise doubts. They make us struggle with the security of our salvation. Some people doubt because they have a more emotional personality. Now, now don't think that's a slam on anybody because the reality is that some of us are more in touch with our feelings than others. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But sometimes we just go through periods in our life where we don't feel connected to God. And if you're one who's, who's a more emotional personality, you're more in touch with your feelings, that's a greater possible struggle for you. We don't feel that God loves me. I don't feel like I possess salvation. I don't feel the presence of God. I don't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if that's a description of you, I just want you to know that the, the truth is, in actuality, all of us have days like that. I have them where you don't feel the spiritual truth of salvation. We all have bad days where we are exhausted. We all have bad days where we are emotionally drained. We all have bad days where we're under pressure. We, all of us can have those days when we have heartburn from a bad meal and we don't feel that connected to God. Maybe in recent times, you've, you've had to deal with a lot of pain. I know what it's like to deal with pain, to go through a very severe surgery and the pain and the discomfort that comes from that. And a lot of times we can feel like we're not real secure in our relationship with God. Or maybe we, we think we've been praying and God doesn't hear us, and so we don't feel that way. See, that's why the Bible teaches that we don't just come to know Him by faith, that we have to live by faith, that as they were singing, we have to believe again and again and again. But that's part of our walk. That's not part of our core relationship with God. Real life issues raise doubts. Some struggle with the security of their salvation. Some doubt because of a, a personal betrayal in their, in their life history. And they have trust issues Maybe there was a father who abandoned the family, or maybe there was a spouse or a, a parent who was abusive or unfaithful. Maybe they were at one time in a, in a group, sometimes even a spiritual group, where there was manip manipulative leadership that existed there. And because of that sense of some betrayal, it's really easy to project that onto God and salvation. And can I really trust Him? Can I really rely on Him? Can I really take him at his word? All of these are issues that can cause us to struggle with the security of salvation. But the question is, does God leave us in the dark on all of this? And the answer is no. Which leads us to the second thing we wanted to look at today, and that is that Scripture teaches that we can know with certainty. We can know with certainty about our salvation. I want you to turn in the Gospel of John to chapter 5 and verse 24. John chapter 5 and verse 24. And we're going to see that the Bible teaches that we can know with certainty about our salvation and about the security of our salvation. I want you to notice what it says in verse 24 there. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Now, don't just skip past those first couple of words in that verse. It's actually an idiom of the day when he says, truly, truly, I say to you. I think the NIV translates it, I tell you the truth. I think the New Living Translation says, I assure you. Let me give you a translation in the vernacular of today. Most assuredly, let me say this, it's the solid truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's really what that idiom meant. It's the whole truth, nothing but the truth, it's the solid truth, that he who hears my word and believes and trusts in him who sent me has eternal life. Look at the verbal form. It's not we'll get it some time in the future, but you have it right now, present tense. Eternal life is something that begins now and continues on. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 47. John 6 verse 47, it begins the same way. Truly, truly, I say to you. Most assuredly, this is the solid truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. What does the rest of the verse say? He who believes, who's trusting in the work of Christ, has present tense, eternal life. You can know with certainty. I want you to turn and write a number of books in your Bible to the book of 1 John. You have the book of the Revelation that ends the New Testament. 1 John is one of those little books that's right before that. 1 John chapter 5 and verses 11 to 13. This is a passage that Pastor Mark took us through not too long ago. And I, know, I want you to notice what he writes here. He says, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son, who's trusted in Him for salvation, has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, notice verse 13, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, you're either trusting in Christ's work on the cross or you're not doing it. But if you are trusting in His work on the cross, you have eternal life and you can know with certainty that you have eternal life, that your salvation is secure. Remember, eternal life begins now. It's not some sort of future thing. It begins now, and it continues on forever. Now, whenever you begin to teach these things from the Bible, and I've done them in multiple places in this country and other places, when you begin to talk about how secure our salvation is, a little hand goes up. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute now. You know, they're objecting. They're saying, if that's true, that our salvation is secure, well, then you're just promoting a license for people to go out and sin. You're promoting a license for people to go out and just run amok in their life. If this is a secure thing, people were just going to go spiritually nuts out there. So, therefore, we don't want to teach that. But that's not, the Bible addresses this. I want you to, to uh, turn your attention to Romans chapter 6. And we have it up on the screen if you want to just look at it there. See, this very thing was, was raised with the Apostle Paul. Talking about the security of 
our grace salvation. And the question he raises is, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, okay, it's secure salvation that we hold to, so we, should we just stack up more sin so that God's grace can be even greater? And he gives an answer to that. He says, may it never be, which I would translate in our lingo of today, never, not in a million years. Are we giving a license to people to go around and run amok? Never, not in a million years. In Romans chapter 6, verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Should we just go around and run amok? Should we just sin up a storm everywhere? And the answer is, may it never be. Never, not in a million years. See, the Scripture exhorts us not to abuse grace. Galatians 5.13 says, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. We're not to abuse grace. And guess what? If we choose to do that, God promises to discipline us when we do. I want, I want you to write down these passages. We won't turn to them. But Hebrews chapter 12 is a good one, verses 5 to 11. It says that God promises to discipline us when we do abuse grace. Hebrews chapter 5, you can look at it later. It basically says this, that, that He will discipline every child of His. We decide to run amok for a little while, and He's going to step up. He will take us to the woodshed. He won't drum us out of the family but he will discipline his children. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10, it says one of the things that happens when we choose to sin is we can lose reward and treasures in heaven, not a place in heaven, but reward and treasures in heaven. We're looking at the security of amazing grace. And the third thing we said we wanted to do is we're going to look at them pretty quickly, are two irrefutable evidences of the security of salvation. There are clear evidences of the security of salvation. And here's the very first one. The first evidence that we want to look at, it's irrefutable evidence, is the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you have your Bibles, turn them to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to look at the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, you have, you know, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, God's Electric Power Company, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. This is the one of the irrefutable evidences of the security of our salvation. Notice verse 13 says, In Him, notice the wording here, it's very intriguing. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you see, you need to hear the good news that Christ gave His life as a ransom for you. After listening to the message and having also believed in it, having trusted in it, 
and trusting yourself to his work on the cross, something happens. It says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That's speaking of you and I, you and me, to the praise of his glory. Now, this is, these verses are packed with information. But I want you to first look at the analogy that he uses. He says that when we believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, in that day, the practice of sealing something had had several aspects to it. Um, First of all, it was an identifying mark. When you put your seal on something, you were doing it as a sign of ownership, and that's part of the idea that's involved here when he sends the Holy Spirit. He's putting his sign of ownership on your life and mine. Over the years, I've collected quite a number of books in my preaching library. And one of the things I've been doing for a number of years with those books is I have this stamp, and my administrative assistant stamps my name in that book. It's a a sign of ownership. Occasionally, someone borrows a book or books get mixed together, and I want them to understand that's, that's my book. I would like to have it back eventually. It's a sign of ownership. Sealing was also a sign of security. You would seal something to guarantee against the tampering of it. You see medicine bottles are sealed. Uh, we, we buy our milk from Brahms. You go to Brahms and you buy milk and you bring it home, you'll notice that there, the cap is, is sealed, and so there's this little ring around there, and you have to break that ring loose, and then you remove the cap, and oh, there's another seal in there, and you have to pull that seal off, and you toss that seal, the inner seal, and the, and the ring in the trash, and now you have your, your cap, and you can get in. But it's there for a reason. It's been sealed against tampering. And that's part of the imagery here of the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee against tampering. In fact, in chapter 4 and verse 30 of this same book, we learned that we have been sealed until the day of redemption. That's the day that we walk into heaven. And so you see, this is a very clear, irrefutable evidence of the security of our salvation. When we trust in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a sign of God's ownership. He owns me. It's a sign of his security that he guarantees against tampering. I am going to show up in heaven one day. I have guaranteed deliverance into the presence of God. And then he even adds another concept here when he says in verse 14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says the Holy Spirit is given of a pledge of our inheritance. The idea here is is a deposit, um, some earnest money that God gives to say he's going to guarantee our delivery in heaven. My son Kyle and his wife Brittany are getting ready to, to buy a house down in Texas. And so one of the things you have to do when you do that is you have to put down some, some earnest money. It's, going to, it's guaranteeing that you're going to follow through with the transaction. And that's what the Holy Spirit is in your life and mine. It's a pledge. It's a guarantee. God says, I'm going to, I'm going to guarantee that you're going to arrive here. I'm going to complete the transaction and have you in heaven. So that's the first irrefutable evidence of the security of salvation. There's a second thing we want to look at. It's going to take us back to the book of 1 John. So if you'll turn there, 
again to 1 John, which is toward the end of the New Testament, and chapter 2 this time, and the first couple of verses. The second irrefutable evidence of the security of our salvation is the advocacy of Christ. The advocacy of Christ. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, because that's what a child of God should not do. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a legal representative with the Father, and He Himself is the propitiation, the full legal satisfaction for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. How secure is our salvation? Well, the advocacy of Christ says fully secure. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, it says that He lives always to make intercession for us. The New Living Translation says there, he lives forever to plead with God on our behalf. You have to picture the scene in heaven. I like to picture the scene in heaven, you know. When, when I've been off track or I've done something wrong, I've thought something wrong, and you, you just imagine Satan showing up in heaven and saying, whoa, 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 time out. Look at that Hess guy. Look at what he was thinking. Look at what he was doing. That's wrong, that's a violation, and yet we have a legal representative who goes, wait a minute, uh, time out to you, Satan. just want you to know something. Um, I, I took care of the penalty for that. I paid that. And God the Father says, case dismissed. What an amazing thing that is to contemplate. We have an advocate in heaven who is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who himself is the full legal satisfaction and payment for our sins. Now, the last thing I said we were going to do as we look at the security of amazing grace is that we were going to end today by looking at a crowning passage. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn in them quite a bit to the left in your Bible to the book of Romans which is right after the book of Acts in chapter number 8. And some of the thoughts I'm going to share with you as we look at this crowning passage that emphasizes the security of amazing grace is, is some information that I shared with our staff and elders a number of weeks ago. And we had turned to this passage to reflect on. Look at verse 31. It says, "'What then shall we say to these things?' If God is for us, who is against us? And sometimes it's so easy to read Scripture, you know, and not really allow it to impact us. And we were talking about the fact that there are four very, very significant words in that verse. God is for us. And you can just park on any one of those, and they're amazing. Think about it. God is for us. You see, people can neglect us. People can hurt us. People can disappoint us. But the ruler of the universe, the king of kings himself, 
God is for us. But it goes on. The description is God is for us. You see, it's not maybe, it's not was, it not could be. But right now, this very second, constantly and consistently, God is for us. Amazing phrase. We have a slide on that. I'd, I'd like to get that up. God is for us. The third word, God is for us. Think about it. He cheers you on. He's on your team. He shouts out your name. He is fully devoted to your best. You are the apple of his heart. God is for us. Then you come to the last word. God is for us. Us. Your picture is on the wall next to his throne. Your name, as we sang, is engraved on his hand. God is for us. Who can be against us? I mean, life, we feel like life is sometimes against us, and people are against us, and circumstances are against us, and there can be aging and disease that is against us, and there can be evil in the world that is against us. But what is that when God is for us? In Romans chapter 8, in verse 32, it says, He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. If he gave you his son, what need won't he meet in your life? If he gave you his son, what will he not provide for you? Isn't it interesting? We worry about the economy. We worry about the leadership in Washington, D.C. We worry about our family. We worry about our future. And yet he gave himself for you. He died for you, if you know him. Would he disregard your prayers? Would he neglect your everyday needs? I like the way the New Living translate. Translation translates verse 33. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Next verse goes on to say, Who then will condemn us? Will Christ Jesus? No. He is the one who died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God pleading for us. You know, the enemy and his associates and even our own heart can seek to flood our minds with guilt. You know, they want to, they want to like take a billboard and put every slip and every mistake and every failure and every fault up there. Someone was sharing with me in the first service this morning. They said, you know, that debt clock that you see and everything click, 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 click. 
It's almost like there's a sin clock, you know? Click, 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 click. And God just keeps hitting the delete key. Boom. Boom. And the enemy can come along and say, you know, uh, that, that person's really a failure. They're not worthy. They're unfit. They're an embarrassment to this whole kingdom of God thing. And when those words come up, if you've trusted in Christ and his work on the cross, there is a verdict that is barked afresh in the councils of heaven on a regular basis. And that verdict is not a denial of the charges. Oh, rather, it's an acknowledgement of the charges. But Jesus Christ stands up and says, fully aware of the problem, but I paid the penalty for it. And God the Father says, case dismissed time and time again. The question is asked in verse 35. Again, I like the New Living Translation. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? It's almost like we're asking, how long, God, can your love for us endure? Is it really forever? Is it even when, when I stumble in my life, does your love endure? When I'm grumpy, when I'm down, and when I'm dragging? When I embarrass myself and you? Even, does it endure, Father, when I'm angry at you because you're not answering my demands for why or when? It's almost like God is asking, is there anything that can make me stop loving you? And when we pose that question to him, he just points over at the person of Jesus Christ and says, I answered that for you at the cross. The security of amazing grace. Look at verses 38 and 39 again. Let's read them together. Just look at these verses. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the security of our salvation. And as we were sitting there and we went through this as elders and staff and we were reflecting on it and letting it sink in, I'll never forget Murray Tabb speaking up and he says, how can we keep this to ourselves? How can we keep this to ourselves? It's amazing grace. And if you've been entangled in ingratitude and ungratefulness, you know what? You need to bask in a fresh way in his grace. If you've been worrying and fretting about whether or not you're going to be able to maintain your salvation, if you're trusting in Christ, you need to bask in a fresh way in his grace. And we need to share what we know about the grace of God with other people. They need it. And we need to follow him. Let's, let's bow in prayer together. We're going to close with a song. Father, we thank you again for your amazing grace and for the security of amazing grace. It just astonishes me. It astonishes me. And we want to pray, Father, that in a very fresh way that you would 
capture us afresh with your grace. Thank you again for your amazing grace. Thank you.